Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In the movie The Third Man, Orson Welles delivered this sensational ad-lib speech. You know what the fellows said. In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. This was unfair to Schwabia, which invented the cuckoo clock, and to Switzerland, whose mercenaries had been literally up to their elbows in that bloodshed, transmuting blood into gold, which flowed into Switzerland, funding banks, dairies, clockmakers, and the multiplex knife. But Wells's take on 16th century history is not that far removed from Catherine Fletcher's new history, The Beauty and the Terror, the Italian Renaissance and the Rise of the West, which reminds us that the art of the Renaissance existed because of a world of warfare, that its literature thrived despite or because of deep religious passions. Catherine Fletcher is a historian of Renaissance and early modern Europe and professor of history at Manchester Metropolitan University. She has previously published The Black Prince of Florence, a biography of Duke Alessandro de' Medici of Florence, and has served as advisor to the set designers of the TV series Wolf Hall. Catherine Fletcher, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks very much for inviting me. So um, the UK edition was, I think, subtitled An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance. Is, is that right? Yes, that's right. And in the way, mysterious ways of publishers, uh, which authors are not to question, um, they always change the title when it comes to America. Uh, and <laughs> thinking that us uh, colonial rubes can't handle alternative history of the Italian Renaissance, uh, they change it to the Italian Renaissance and the Rise of the West. And actually, I think that subtitle, the alternative history of the Italian Renaissance, is rather good. And I miss it. Um, so uh, I don't know if that was yours, but um, it does express something about, I think, what you were trying to do when you wrote the book. Um, so is that right? And and what essentially is your argument for the, for this book? In a sense, what I was trying to do when I wrote the book is, yes, it is a different way of seeing the Renaissance. It's also a way of putting together a series of historical narratives that are often told separately. Mm -hmm. So we have a story of the Renaissance, which focuses on art and literature and culture. There's a story about warfare and the Italian wars, the different military technologies that are developed in the course of the wars, which run between 1494 and 1559. Then running alongside that, you have a history of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, so the religious change that goes on in that period. And then you have the first European encounters with the peoples of the Americas um, and the rise of European empires. So Part of what I was trying to do is to put those stories together because people living at that time were experiencing them at the same time. And we don't, we silo them off to write separate books now, but mm -hmm. that wasn't how it worked in practice. So my idea was really that if you tell these stories together and look at the connections, they become, you know, more in their whole. And we can see interesting ways in which, for example, the wars impinged on the Reformation and impinged on the art, that artists were involved in warfare, that the same people might be commissioning well-known artworks and also involved in um, early colonial exploitation. So 
you know, we, we, it's, a, it's a different way, I suppose, of trying to think about this period and put it together as opposed to treating it separately. Yes, which is what I really love about this uh, book. First of all, because it 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 feeds into all my prejudices. Um, <laughs> when I uh, used to teach, I think I, when I would teach this, I would uh, tell students that Cortez was at I think besieging Tenochtitlan at the exact same moment that Charles, uh, the Emperor Charles, was confronting the monk Martin Luther. Um, and that always blew them away that to put those two sort of things together and realize that they are intimately connected or they would become intimately connected. Yeah. Um, Charles would soon be able to blow a great deal of, of cash uh, against the Reformation because of the conquest of Mexico. Uh, the other thing is, is, is that this becomes um, what well, the late Edmund Morgan once in a review, which I've quoted often on the podcast, refer, said this book is, it is military history, it is religious history, it is social history, it is cultural history, it is all those and none, that is to say, it is good history. And so by Mor this, the Morgan standard, this is good history. It's all those things wrapped together. Um, Let's talk about Italy. Um, why was Italy so important? Uh, our nationalist histories since the 19th century have emphasized, um, even in America, being an English-speaking nation has often emphasized England at the expense of uh, other nations. Um, French, the French do the same. Uh, the Spanish have done the same. But Italy has a central importance. Um, I think often in our histories of Renaissance, we say, yeah, they produce good art, but you know, really, what else can they do? Um, but why was Italy so centrally important at this period? Well, it's one of the two wealthiest parts of Europe at this right. period. Everybody, um, I mean, along with the Netherlands, and it's not a coincidence that these are the two places that really have a great artistic renaissance because there is the cash to spend on art. Um, but it's, a, it's in a strategic location. It is at the crossroads of Mediterranean trade. Italy is the place that you go if you want to buy um goods that are being traded in from China, from India, via Constantinople, I'm now Istanbul, through the Mediterranean and up to the markets of Venice or Florence or Genoa. Um, Italy is right in that spot um, to capitalize on those trade routes and then to sort of ship the goods up to Northern Europe. Um, and that makes it very rich. And because it's a very rich part of Europe, a lot of the larger European powers have an interest in getting their hands on it, or at least increasing their influence on the Italian peninsula. So Italy is important for that, those reasons. It's also very important because Rome is the centre of the Catholic Church, which at the start of the period I'm writing about still has a monopoly on, um, on, on Christianity in the West. So a lot of people come to Rome to do church business. The Pope has to rubber stamp all sorts of church arrangements. It becomes a diplomatic center um, for that reason. So Italy is important, not just um, because it's a wealthy area, because it's a center of trade, but also as a political center. And I, I don't think it's possible for modern listeners to exaggerate in their mind how much, say, wealthier Venice is than uh, England. Um in, uh, it's uh, it's staggeringly wealthy. Um, it might just be a quote unquote city state, but these are very wealthy places. They are indeed, yeah. And yet small. I think what's what's Florence's population at this time? It's like what uh, eighty thousand, hundred thousand. I, mean, I, I think the whole the whole of Italy has a population of around about eleven million people at this time. Oh, so it yeah. is not a, you know it really is it, it it's by no means the largest um, state. And of course within it. it 
it's not a state of 11 million people. It's divided up into these five larger states, um, the city-states of, of Florence and Venice, Milan, Naples and the Papal States. They're the five larger ones. And then there are loads of smaller ones, um, Lucca, Siena, Genoa, Ferrara, Mantua. So you, you have um, this division of the peninsula, which makes, in a sense, for this kind of competition um, going on over all sorts of things, which you know, prompts a lot. I think part of the reason you get such um, gorgeous art commissioned in some of the small courts is precisely because they want to show off. But, could we, but, could we, oh, yeah. go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Could we um, talk briefly, uh, sort of segue, this is the political situation within Italy. So the uh, the, the high Middle Ages have been mm-hmm. remarkable for the proliferation of um, urban republics, of civic republics. Yeah. Uh, in the 15th century, those had begun to diminish or be, as it were, take, taken over by, turned into more oligarchies and then uh, lordships, uh, dictatorships, we might call them. Um there's been you have some interesting views on this and the sort of the whether or not this was a less creative or more creative period could you could you explicate that well there there is, there is in some of the older literature on the italian renaissance this assumption um i think coming out of a, a tradition of republican thinking that of course the republics must have been the most creative places and i think that in recent years, a lot of scholars have begun to question that and to point to the kind of more complex picture of who is commissioning art at what point and for which purpose. So it isn't simply about saying, well, Florence had great art and that was because of its Republican regime and there's something inherently progressive about that relationship between the Republic and the art commissioning. I mean, Florence does have an incredible um, a bit period of Renaissance art. Um, But you also get this incredible commissioning um, of artworks in the court societies. So in the um, city-states of Mantua, where the Marquises of Mantua um, have people like Andrea Mantegna working for them, painting their palaces. Uh, You get the Duke of Milan, um, who I'm sure we'll come on to in more detail, who um, is a patron to Leonardo da Vinci. Um, Leonardo actually leaves Florence to work for the Duke of Milan. Um, so we have this um, the, these princes who have this interesting financial relationship with the larger states in that they will often hire themselves out as um, essentially mercenary commanders, providing military services to the larger states, taking the money and then using that money to commission art. So um, the financial picture and the way that warfare and the economy of um these small courts fits together. Um, Yeah, as I say, it's not so straightforward as saying it is simply about these, um, you know, the republics being the sole motors of progress. Mm -hmm. And I I suppose it's not uh, straightforward either as saying that it's these, uh, I'm going to call them dictators for lack of a, for lack of a better. Yeah, tyrants is is, is the word that people often like for them. Um, It goes back to Burkhardt. They call it, you know, the tyrants, these these rulers who of of questionable questionable legitimacy in terms of how they've acquired power. They and it's not they're not the ones that prompt art either. That's too neat as well. That in order to display and compete with other courts. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly they they want to. There is definitely a process of competition. I mean, part of being a prince in this period, the the, the most important part of being a prince in this period, I think, is still um, conquest on the battlefield and then maintenance and defence of your territories. But there is a greater emphasis on culture. You start to get more stable courts, um, courts that are centres for literature and learning that... um, and, and secular centres as well, um, sort of supplementing the monasteries that have always kind of had manuscripts and libraries and, and, and been centres of learning. But there is a growth of secular education, more secular education. Um, and that's part of the picture of the Renaissance. Um, sorry, I slightly lost my thread there. Apologies. Yeah. Um, so um, a couple more things. Um, what is the Renaissance? And uh, what's the sort of standard received uh, historical view, and it, and how does that uh, coincide with your own? Well, I think there's um, there's there's a Renaissance that happens in Italy, particularly in Florence, um, in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, which is um, an artistic movement um, that draws very explicitly on ideas of a classical past and sort of tries to reinvent them for its own world. And I think to me that that movement, a self-conscious movement of trying to revive something that um, apparently previously existed in the golden age uh, is, you know, it's a very important cultural idea. And lots of people refer to it. Lots you see, you have lots of examples of artists, for example, like Raphael and um, drawing, um, you know, painting um, in the the Raphael rooms of the Vatican Palace, for example, Um, you know, these ancient scenes, um, the School of Athens, for example, as I guess is the the archetypal one. Um, At the same time, there's a whole lot of Italian society that doesn't in a very meaningful way have a renaissance because... um, they're going. They're going about their their lives. They might see some of this new style artwork in the churches. They might think it's all rather modern. Um, notice that it's fashionable. But you know that the, the the Renaissance as a cultural movement is a relatively elite cultural movement. Um, and the, the the terms of the academic debate have shifted over time about who exactly is involved in it. So I think. Back in the 1970s, there were a lot of questions about were women involved in the Renaissance in any sense at all. And I think nowadays we would say, well, actually, there's more evidence for the involvement of elite women in the Renaissance than perhaps we we accepted in the past. But still, um, the Renaissance, I think, is is a problematic term. Um, I think a lot of scholars who write on um, aspects of social history will talk about late medieval and early modern or a point of transition between late medieval and modern and um, whatever modern means um, mm. rather than use the term renaissance um, but it's it's a handy shorthand especially when you, when you come to book titles because it does conjure up in people's minds some of the great names that are associated with the the 15th and 16th centuries so you have your michelangelo leonardo the, the ninja turtle artists as we <laughs> yeah. as, as, yeah. You know, you know that, that, that it, it, it has it has a cultural resonance, and I think that's partly why it persists. Well, let's talk about an aspect that sort of begins the book, uh, an event which is not so well associated with the Renaissance, um, but is 
eminently part of it, and that is Charles VIII's descent into Italy in 1494. Could you explain what I mean by uh, who was Charles VIII and what his descent was and why it was important? So basically, the um, Charles Charles VIII is the King of France, and his descent into Italy begins with um, a squabble between different factions of the ruling family of Milan. Um, one of these factions of the family is allied with the rulers of Naples, one is not, and the one that is not decides that it would be helpful to invite the King of France um, to help them out because the King of France has an interest in Naples, the southernmost um, realm in Italy, um, because his family has an, in turn has an ancient claim to rule Naples. So um, what begins as a let's settle an argument over who's going to rule Milan, very, very quickly escalates into a full-scale war in Italy when Charles brings his troops um, over the Alps. They march down the peninsula um, to actually, you know, I mean, plundering and destroying as they go, but also against a lot of um, city-states like Florence, for example, that really hadn't been prepared to deal with an invading French army. And they go past Rome, they get all the way down to Naples. Um, within a few years, they are um, they are actually pushed back. But um, what that invasion does is it opens up um, a war that will last on and off 65 years for hegemony over the Italian peninsula. Because Spain, um, which is a newly consolidated power, at this time, does not want its large rival France taking over Italy. So we quite quickly get into a struggle between um, these two large European powers um, in shifting, constantly shifting. Um, I, you know, I, I've, written, I've written the book and I, I can't do them off the top of my head who lives <laughs> in any given year. Um, you know, constantly shifting um, alliances of different Italian powers with Spain or with France. Um, fighting a series of wars for control of different parts of of Italy. Mm -hmm. This was not the first time a French army or a European armies had descended into Italy. Um, why did it lead, in this case, to such a very long war? Um, European powers had fought, I mean, the empire and, well, not Spain, but the empire and France had fought over Italy in the past, hadn't they? Yeah, I mean, there, there have been wars in the past. I think one of the big new factors in this situation is Spain. Um, Spain is a new state. Um, Spain is very, is, has really been formed into something approaching its modern shape, not quite its modern shape, um, through the alliance of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. So Aragon and Castile had previously been separate realms um, on the Iberian Peninsula. They have a, a union through marriage and then gradually um, shift their governments closer together. Ferdinand and Isabella then um, in 1492 um, conquer the kingdom of Granada um, and, and then reconquista and throw out the, um, the last of the Muslim kings of Granada. They then um, really have this consolidated kingdom um, that they start and, and they start to do what princes do, which is to go off and think, well, hey, we're going to conquer some more stuff. Um, and so, so France has a really new rival power in Spain, and Spain has access to resources. 
in increasing access to resources. And a little bit further down the line in the war, this is, this is increased again when um, through an accident of inheritance, um, Charles V, who is the Holy Roman Emperor, um, so that puts him in charge of most of um, the German states and Austria, What um, and again, Germany is not one um, country at this time. Um, Charles V becomes King of Spain too, um, so you have this, this enormous um, European um, kind of composite monarchy um, presided over by Charles um, and a big military rival in France which is the single largest European power. So it's a, it, it's a very complex situation in which lots of monarchs have, um, you know, it, not only territory, but also sort of princely honor at stake. Yes. Um, let's look at another sort of case study. Um, the Probably the most famous uh, person of the Renaissance for people is, would be Leonardo da Vinci. Um, you insist on seeing him not only as an artist, but also as a military enthusiast or even a military engineer. Um, could you explain that and, and how this, uh, he's an example of how warfare and art merge? Well, I think it's it's interesting when Leonardo is going to work for the Duke of Milan, he himself um, sets, <laughs> sets himself up as primarily a military engineer. Um, he writes a 10-point letter um, mm. and he, he goes through this. He's got those sort of points of one to nine focused on the secrets he might bring to Milan, having considered the proofs of all those who count themselves masters and inventors of the instruments of war. And he's got everything. He's got, you know, bridges and secret passages and things that look effectively like tanks and catapults and so forth. And he gets not, he, he, he gives out nine different points of military expertise and then he sort of says, "Oh, by the way, I could also do architecture and sculpture and painting." <laughs> um, so, so you know, this isn't me inventing this narrative. This is this is Leonardo himself being very aware of what is in demand at the courts mm -hmm. of Italy and what are the priorities of some of these princes. And you know, Leonardo gains a great deal and gains a great deal of patronage because he is able to take on those projects. I mean, they don't always work out perfectly um, by, by any means at all, but um, he is somebody who can deliver, um, for example, a little bit later on to, um, to Cesare Borgia, he um, draws an incredible, um, a revolutionary bird's eye map of the um, street layout of a city called Imola, which um, Cesare was trying to conquer at the time. Um, so, you know, here is a practical skill in observation and perspective and so forth being brought to bear in a context which is all about um, warfare and conquest. But most of his devices were, to use the the technical, mo the modern term, um, they were vaporware, weren't they? I mean, the, he didn't build any tanks. He didn't build any flying no. machines. He didn't build the rotating bridges. He didn't do et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, he didn't build. No, he didn't build them. But he, I mean, there are bits of drawing. For example, I mean, he draws a wheel lock mechanism for um, a firearm, which was a new technology at the time. And um, whether there's a large argument about whether or not he was really the first person to come up with that, or whether he was copying something that somebody else had invented. But the point is that if you have that, that his attraction was, you know, if you have somebody sure. with that level of expertise in drawing in all those military skills, then at the very least, you, he can be an advisor to the people who are doing the more practical work. Um, mm -hmm. And, and there's, there's, there's almost a propaganda sense 
mm-hmm. appointing Leonardo. You know, he is the um, you know top person in all of this. I mean, he's dreadful at delivery, but yeah. there is a, a prestige attached to to employing him, which is why he ends up in the service of the King of France. Huh. What are there other artists who sort of uh, also mirror this sort of sort of uh, the, um, self this entrepreneurship, uh, who might, also uh, advertise themselves as as military engineers and savants? Michelangelo does exactly the same. Michelangelo becomes um, the the head of fortifications for the Florentine Republic, and he mm. is actually, I mean, in the fifteen twenties. Um, rather more hands-on, in fact, than Leonardo in terms of supervising the design of um, the walls of Florence in an attempt to resist the besieging army. So, you know, he he is an author of the very, very famous names of the Renaissance who who makes a career um, that way. Um, You have other people like um, Sangallo, the architect who designs a number of buildings, you know, palaces for the Medici family, um, but also does fortifications in, in the city of Rome. So that crossover between, um, you know, domestic architecture and then military fortifications is is quite a common one. And then you've got an earlier era. Um, we've got Alberti, who is also the architect for the Malatestas, but also their cryptographer and does many other um, things for them as well. Yeah, there, I mean, there, there is this crossover between you know, if you can, if you can do maths, for example, you can calculate artillery trajectories. A lot of the best mathematical minds in Italy yeah. in these wars are sitting yeah. around working out exactly where to position cannon and writing well, practice- up books, books of you know how to fire your cannon, um, because and and are calculating things like um, how high to build um, fortress walls. I mean, there's a whole yeah. big development of military technology at this time in terms of what's called the Tras Italienne, which is a particular way of um, fortifying um, your, your castle um, against attack by cannon. And they basically, it, it involves um, lower, thicker walls and ditches beside them, as opposed to very high walls, which are at more risk of collapse if they're shot at. But, oh, you know, there, there is lots of worrying about, um, you know, all, all of the, the technical side of warfare um, that goes on. And that's a part of you know, the learning in this period that you start to see when you dig down into this other side of the narrative. Um, it is, you know, it isn't purely um, a, a, a university accomplishment. It isn't only about bookkeeping. Um, it's, it's also about, um, you know, how to, how to conduct war to your state's best advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, just a kind of, I just want to, a pet contention of mine is that Leonardo is not really a Renaissance man. Um, to paraphrase the the talent scout, probably the apocryphal talent scout's observation of Fred Astaire, you know, he can, he can draw, uh, he can paint a little. Um, but when you compare him to Alberti or even Michelangelo, um, there are some, he, he, first of all, I mean, is the Renaissance man a, a, a or the homo universale, universale is that a, a, a term that they would have used at the time? Um, and how does one uh, qualify as, as, a, as such a person? Um, and what's the importance of being such a person? Well, um, I think there are reasons not to talk about people in the 16th century as Renaissance men, because I think that one of the characteristics of the 16th century is that there are, in fact, an awful lot of things that are entirely new. 
mm-hmm. um, or at least new to Europeans. So, for example, um, the shape of the world um, as it is now being kind of discovered in inverted commas by Europeans um, is different from anything that has gone before. And they can try all they like to reinvent it in in, in relation to, to a classical past, but it really doesn't work after a while. Um, the, a lot of the firearms technology, it's new. Um, mm-hmm. Compass is new. There are lots and lots of new things to contend with that don't... Um, you know, fit a Renaissance pattern of, well, what we're doing is reviving um, this great classical past that had been lost in the intermediate dark ages. So um, I think there are lots of reasons not to to, to to try and think about, in fact, some of the impacts of um, the new technologies, um, the new experiences, the things that um, people in these societies hadn't been doing before, um, rather than simply, and, and, and to think as well about the tension between some of that and this idea that we always ought to be referring back to what's gone before. Um, mm-hmm. So there, can, can I, so there's this, there's an interesting, there's a very um, fruitful tension mm. between those like Pico della Mirandola or and Alberti um, who believe that, um, I guess you can see this in the, what amounts to the quasi-religion of Hermes, uh, Trismegistus, mm. um, that the ancients have all the secrets and that we have lost them in debased ages. We have we have let them slip from our fingers, and now the goal of scholarship is to recover them and to recover their amazing powers. And then there are people saying, "Hang on, the the, the ancients never knew about the the compass. The ancients never knew about gunpowder or the wheel lock, or we could go on." Um, and our goal is to uh, we, we they didn't know about the other side of the world. Um, and we're trying to do new things. Is that what you're, is that sort of the, the tension? I think that's right. I think by the time you get a little bit later on into the 16th century, you start to get um, people writing about the sort of the new inventions of modern times. And I think that is this, 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 this seeing the 16th century as this sort of transition from a period in which, you know, significant numbers of people thought that, yes, what the, the key task for intellectuals um, was to recover that lost classical knowledge and to gain as much as possible from the texts to people suddenly saying, look, um, we are now in a new period. There are different things going on. Look, our age has done all this new stuff. And, mm. and I think that that's, so, so you see this, this transition and, and of course, you know, it lasts a lifetime and longer. And some people are at the start of it and some people are at the end. Some people are probably more conscious of the, the new things that have happened in their lifetime. But certainly by the 1560s and 70s, that narrative that um, we are in a new age, that there is a, a new world um, out there hmm. is is very important. Um, before we move uh, away from this, uh, from Leonardo, let's, uh, you do a lovely thing with the Mona Lisa. Could you explain the sort of the, the stories that are embedded within Mon- the Mona Lisa? Yeah, well, the Mona Lisa is another um, point for me of connection between um, these different stories of the 16th century. And so we have Leonardo, um, obviously, painting the Mona Lisa, this incredible sort of philosophical portrait, this very mysterious portrait, much meditated over in terms of its meaning. And on the other hand, I mean, thanks to, to research was published, I mean, just a few years ago by um, Giuseppe Pallanti and Martin Kemp, we had this story of the connections of 
Mona Lisa's husband, um, Francesco del Giocondo, um, to the um, expanding trade in Portuguese West Africa, um, in Madeira, and to the trade in enslaved people. Um, Francesco, as it turns out, brought um, a number of people um, who are described in records as his slaves to be baptized in um, the baptistry in Florence. I mean, one of those you know, buildings that's incredibly prominent on the tourist trail, um, which is not a site that one would particularly associate, I, I think, at all with um, slave trading. No. But this is where um, you know, people who were enslaved, who were... Um, you know, essentially being being forcibly converted to Christianity, um, were, were brought. Um, and so we get this connection via the painting between, on the one hand, Leonardo, this, you know, archetypal Renaissance man, if you like, um, Renaissance artist, and then on the other hand, too, um, the beginnings of um, this this incredibly exploitative process, um, processes of European colonization, um, the rise of European empires, and the the beginnings of um, traded enslaved people. I mean, we we don't know exactly where um, all of the the different um, women primarily come from. Um, some of them are described as being Moorish, which is a, a kind of rather ambiguous term, can mean um, Muslim, can mean North African. Um, one of them has the name Kumba, which is associated with West Africa. There's a boy who's come via Lisbon. So, yeah, we have the, the this um, this group of people who said to turn up and named once in the records. Um, we don't know what, what they went on to do, um, but who I think... Um, Although that you know they're they're one part of this family's story, allow us to look in a rather different light at the Mona Lisa and what that painting means and what that that painting is associated with. Um, now, the slave trade had been long established in the Mediterranean, going back mm-hmm. to oh forever. Yep. Um, and uh, I think in a couple of weeks after you hear this podcast, uh, listeners will also can hear another podcast with Hannah Barker about the tripartite slave trade uh, between. The almost competition for slaves between uh, the Mamluks, the Genoese, and the Venetians. Um, the this leads then to the next sort of topic, which is um, Cristoforo Colombo, or Cristobal Colon, or Christopher Columbus. Um, it's helpful to see him as a Genoese, an Italian, just engaged in a very long trading mission um, to the West, uh, since so many of his. Uh, his sensibilities are shaped by well the Mediterranean slave trade, among other things. Um, he's also joined by an amazing number of other Genoese and other Italians. Could you talk a little bit about um, the Italians in the uh, the Atlantic world, the the brand new Atlantic world? Yeah, well, I mean, this was for particularly, I think, but not exclusively for Italians from the seafaring republics, um, particularly from Genoa, um, to. Um, to make a fortune. I mean, there are lots of the, 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 the way that Italians relate to the transatlantic um, development of transatlantic voyages to um, the Spanish and the Portuguese empires is quite interesting. It's typically on an individual basis, um, not so much on a state basis. And I think that's because um, city states like Venice and Genoa um, already have. Um, 
you know, good trading links um, with the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, Genoa doesn't have so many um, colonies on the Black Sea as it used to, since um, it's had more and more co- competition from the Ottoman Empire, but they're still doing very nicely. Um, whereas Spain and Portugal have an interest in cutting out the Italian middlemen and finding their own alternative um, trading routes. Obviously, like a large part of um, sailing west from Spain is to have is finding a way of avoiding um, having to, you know, get your get your goods from India or China via the east. So, Italians, including Columbus, um, including Amerigo Vespucci, who is a Florentine, start to take advantage of some of these new economic opportunities. Um, and, you know, the Medici Bank, for example, is investing. In some of these opportunities as well, so um, best of- well, let me let me let me, yeah. uh, let me, let me ask a question then. Yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah, individuals are involved with the um, with the whole westward um, the westward enterprise. Um, states are not. Now, this is partly because Genoa is by this time an almost wholly owned subsidiary of Spain. Um, but there's also, I think there's a, there's a way in which Genoa is also heavily invested in the Spanish success. Shortly after this, uh, Columbus, as I recall in his will, one of his major bequests is shares in the Banco San Giorgio, um, which is partly a maritime insurance partnership. Um, Genoese are insuring these Spanish and Portuguese voyages. Um, this, the Genoese eventually buy up Spanish debt uh, at a great bargain. Genoa makes a lot of money from Spain even though it's no longer an aggressive um, imperial power itself. Yeah, I think exactly that's that's right. What Genoa does over a long period of time is to switch from being um, a small-scale colonial power, if you like, with its, its, its colonies dotted around the Black Sea, um, to being essentially the primary supplier of banking services to the Spanish crown. And Genoa makes a huge amount of money bankrolling um what Spain does. And in fact, this is the point at which you get a lot of traders um, switching from doing mercantile activities into pure banking, pure yeah. fi- into having a kind of pure finance industry that really hadn't existed before. I mean, when the Medici had a bank um, in Florence in the, in the later 14th and 15th century, you know, their bank is also engaged in lots of actual physical trading goods. Um, the Genoese bankers just gradually drop that altogether because they can be financiers and um, pure and simple. So you, all these all these kind of gradual changes in the way that the economy works come along with the need to service this new type of trade, these new colonial enterprises, um, these new empires. So a little earlier, you said that um, you believe that women were a part of the Renaissance. Um, you actually asked the question, that question whether even poor men were part of the Renaissance. But women were certainly part of the Renaissance. And one of the exemplars of this is a fascinating individual, uh, both then and now, uh, Vittoria Colonna. Could you describe her and her circle? Well, Vittoria Colonna is a member of a very prominent um, Italian family at the time with branches in both Rome and Naples, which was extensively involved in the Italian wars. So she's um, related both um, on um, 
in terms of her own, the, the Colonna, um, to various prominent military commanders. But she's also married to um, the Marquis of Pescara, who is a very um, you know, notable uh, military figure himself. So she is... Um, you know, from this very sort of high society end of um, Italy, if you like, she there, there's an aunt in the family who um, runs also sort of literary salon on the island of Ischia, I mean, the Bay of Naples. Um, it all sounds, you know, very, very lovely. Um, and Vittoria herself um, makes a very impressive name as a poet. Um, you know, a very original poet writing on. Um, religious but also secular themes. There's a lovely um, poem that she writes about her husband being away at war and she's widowed. Um, she, she, she's a war widow and in the course of her widowhood, um, she again, which her career sort of links into an, another theme of mine, which is that of religion. Um, she becomes something of a, of a religious radical um, in terms of thinking through some of the impacts of kind of proto-Protestantism um, in Italy. So, yeah, she really, I mean, she, she links all these um, different strands of the story in fascinating ways. So um, let's talk about her, her, who are the people that she attracts to her? Because she's she seems to be a deeply charismatic person. I mean, she she certainly was, and she corresponds. I mean, among others, with with Castiglione, Baldassare Castiglione, author of um, the Book of the Courtier, and she um, and also with Michelangelo. In fact, a lot of the place, if people have come across her before, it's probably most likely to be as noted as one of Michelangelo's correspondents, because you know we we often put her, um, we, you know, we 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 put him first and then her, um, but she, um, yeah, she is. Very innovative, um, particularly in vernacular writing, um, in developing the sonnet form. You know, she has a big, big cultural contribution. Of course, it's less easy, perhaps, to do that poetry in translation for people who don't speak Italian um, than it is to, um, you know, all appreciate a piece of sculpture or, or a painting by Michelangelo. So I suppose that's um, perhaps partly why she has not got quite the level of international reputation than she might otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but where she also is important, I think, um, and, and, which, and, and where Michelangelo also comes into the religious picture is that they're both members of this group of religious thinkers who are referred to as the spirituali, um, the, the spirituals, um, to, get, to give it a, a, a literal name. And this, um, we haven't talked about the Reformation, um, <laughs> but because uh, <laughs> uh, there's only so much the apple that we can bite away at. Um, yet, uh, you know, Gasparo Contarini had a sort of a conversion by faith um, around 1510, 1512. I forget the exact date. It sounds an awful lot like Luther's experience. Uh, and he goes on to become a very prominent Venetian diplomat of a very powerful and prominent family who is then a powerful and prominent cardinal in, in time. Um, and these, so what I'm trying to get at is that some of the same currents and the same sediments that will pop up at Wittenberg, uh, far, far away are all already, they're already at work in Italy. Um, these people are perhaps influenced to some degree by Luther, but these, these, these forces are already at work there amongst them. Yeah, I think that's right. They, um, that there are lots of debates about the, you know, exact, Sort of nuances of the theology, and without going into um, 
all the um, the ins and outs of it, one of the things that I think is particularly important in the Italian context is um, it's perhaps summarised in the title of a best-selling book that that that, that um, hmm. you know it, it is appeals that is linked particularly to this circle, which is called The Benefit of Christ Crucified. And what that book is about is the importance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, um, the central importance of that event for the salvation of humankind. Um, now, that's also something um, which is very appealing um, to Protestants in their theology. Um, so, and and the, how exactly you sort of balance out the importance of Christ's sacrifice versus the importance of human good works um, is a debate that um, sort of roll, rolls on, um, you know, through through the, the, the Catholic discussions about how exactly to respond to the Reformation. Um, but this is certainly a... Um, you know, it's a topic of discussion. Um, these people are taking a really active interest in... Um, how to resolve these theological debates, and you know, we see this in um, actually reflected back into art as well. Um, there's a very fascinating crucifixion um, by Bronzino, which I, I reproduce in the book, um, which is an extraordinarily plain and simple crucifixion um, by your sort of st standard um, 16th century Italian, um, you know, expectations. And that Bronzino crucifixion is commissioned by um, a family called the Panciatiki, who are Florentine, who go on to get in trouble with the Inquisition for owning heretical books and only get off the hook because um, Duke Cosimo de' Medici, the ruler of Florence, um, you know, knows them well enough to intervene and, and um, have the charges dropped. But the, um, there's, there's actually a lot of interest um, in, in the more radical religious ideas mm -hmm. in Italy at this time. It's not simply a case that everybody is firmly Catholic and is definitely sticking by the traditional ideas and rejecting the Reformation. There's a great deal of discussion. And actually right through that sort of in, again, if you're in more elite circles, then it's, you know, not, not unacceptable to read the heretical books mm -hmm. and it's when you start to you know propagandize for them publicly that um the authorities will um, yes, start I, being unhappy. i b believe at something from a, a seminar somewhere sticks in my head that the uh, calvin's institutes of christian religion sold best was one of the best-selling books in venice um well venice venice in particular but i mean it is the european center for book selling so and it, the it would be yeah it would it would be um but it's also i mean venice is very jealous about protecting its book industry from um anything the popes might like to do um, and in general, being resentful of papal interference in any in, in domestic affairs, so they, um, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of, of you know we will publish what we like. Mm -hmm. um, thank you very much. Don't interfere. And they're um, and they're I, close yeah. to the Alps, and they face towards Germany. And there's a there's a Fondaco yeah. Tedeschi for a reason in in, in Venice. Um, there's there's, the, there's those influence as well um, for all those complex reasons. So Italy is not Italy is not. Uh, is not a monolith by any means in religion as well as in everything else. No, indeed. Um, let's uh, finish off by one more thing. Uh, you have a great a little section on Beretta, which turns out to date to at least what, 1526? Um, 1526, the, the first yeah, document. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the arms manufacturer, Pietro Beretta SA. Um, uh, how does Beretta uh, sort of, how does that act as a case study for your, the larger themes of the book of, of art and commerce and religion and war? The war I see. 
Well, I always, I always, um, you know, I was always struck by the fact that um, Beretta actually used that date, 1526, in some of their marketing today for sporting guns. And yet, if you read a book um, or you take a tour of Renaissance history, the chat, you, you, you know, they are never one of the famous names. No. Even though, I mean, they are a famous name full stop today. You know, people know what a Beretta is, um, but, you know, they don't get connected in. To this narrative, and so I, I was really fascinated by the reasons for that, um, because they don't fit the um, the glorious, um, um, you know, unproblematic tale of cultural greatness. Because of course they are, a, 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 you know, that they they produce these days weapons that are associated with much more sort of problematic military contexts. Um, you know, whether whether that's the kind of you know James Bond Cold War stuff or ed- anything else. Um, so so I think the the it, it's very interesting to me that although they have that heritage and we know about it that they sort of fell out of the um of the popular narrative of the renaissance in important ways that you you know we're selective in terms of what goes in and what doesn't but actually um it's interesting, the 16th century, which is precisely the period that I'm writing about here, the, the age of Leonardo and Michelangelo and so forth, um, is also the age when um, the widespread use of handguns really takes off. Um, they take off in the Italian wars. Um, they are they proliferate very widely. Um, you start to get the first period of training in gun use um, in city militia. Um, so they become so guns sort of become a normal feature of life for a lot of Italians in these years, and you know when I and, and often when I say that to people, um, it comes as a surprise hmm. because we don't think of handguns as fitting into the same picture as you say as Martin Luther or uh, of of Michelangelo, and yet they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they belong at the same time. Um, did was. Was Breda was I, I, this is a curious how how major a manufacturer was Breda from, from the beginning? I mean, it, it was it, it. What's most fascinating is is the region where it's located. Um, I think. Yeah. So, um, where the Beretta company was located is still located is in what's it's not much more than a village yeah. um, up outside Brescia, which is a city. Um, between Venice and Milan, near the Italian lake, so you kind of go, you take a, you take, a, take a bus or drive up into the mountains, and um, there's this, this little river coming down um, through the mountains where um, all these tiny sort of artisan manufacturers of gun barrels had their workshops. So they, um, like Beretta, is one of them, but they really seem to operate like a, a kind of cartel, a consortium of the whole um, of the whole district. So they all, you know, will club together and sell on big consignments of arms. So each of them individually probably isn't a very large supplier, but they are, you know, buying up um, guns from lots of different places. The records are really patchy though, because you know the the in in military you know military records are often not kept very well partly because of the nature of warfare you're not necessarily storing lots of bills of sale and storage so putting that bit of the um uh, of the history back together is much harder in some ways than it is um 
you know, trying to reconstruct some of the more literary side of things where people are constantly, you know, writing yeah. letters to each other about what they're, about, yeah. the, about what they're working on. You it's, know, it's, there's, there's none of that with gun makers. It's always, a, it's always a shame that artisans and, you know, like gunsmiths don't mm. send more longer letters to each other. You know, I really had a hard yeah. time machining <laughs> that barrel. It was, uh, I had to, but it would be, it would be great stuff for some of us who are interested in the sort of like the social, the social history of artisans and craftsmanship. Um, too bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they were there because of the water power, the coal, the, 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 the coal, the energy and the, yeah, there's and the coal, iron. There's coal and there's iron ore and you've, you've got wood. So for charcoal to, to, to smelt the iron ore. So everything here, so it's the perfect environment yeah. um, for firearms production. And um, they, and, and, you know, Venice has this, this enormous industry going with, you know, thousands of weapons being produced a year. Mm. So they, they, it, it really expands. And it's um, it's a and it's a highly skilled trade. I think we, uh, if you listen to the, into the archives, listeners can uh, hear a conversation. I think from last summer. Uh, yeah, it was in last summer with a uh, rifle smith, gunsmith at Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, uh, where he, among other things, uh, describes how uh, the rifle smith in the 18th century had to know about 26 discrete crafts uh, uh, tasks. Uh, he had to be a tinsmith, a blacksmith, and on and on and on. It's a very multi-variant. There are many, many things. Um, that joined together uh, to be a gunsmith. Um, by the you end the book in the 1570s. Um, by then, what had changed uh, in Italy and in the world around it? Well, I think in Italy you have a this enormous increase in Spanish power and influence mm. over the course of the century. So, this is the really the period of that the height of um, Spanish power in Europe, which. You know, last for about a hundred years, when Spain really, you know, has has very early on got control of the the Kingdom of Naples, and um, but has also imposed and um, imposed itself over the Papal States and um, Florence, and much of the Italian Peninsula, with the exception um, really of Venice, and so Spain is very much more powerful. Um, the Council of Trent um, has concluded in 1563. So that's the church council that really determines the response of um, the Roman Catholic Church to Protestantism and then initiates um, perhaps an artistic counter-reformation movement in terms of its own propaganda. Um, outside of, um, on, on, in terms of you know, foreign powers, there's, the Ottoman um, Empire has expanded hugely. Um, over the course of the 16th century. So from the um, conquest of Constantinople in 1453, um, it's gradually um, moved through um, seizing different um, Italian islands, um, form, formerly under control of um, Genoa, um, formerly under the control of Venice. Um, so these are the islands of the Eastern Mediterranean, places like Rhodes and Cyprus. So you've got a, a very different sort of picture of imperial growth from the Ottoman side as well. Um, but also you have this, the, the, um, the Battle of Lepanto, um, which has been a very symbolic battle. Um, so in terms of the Ottoman conflict with the Christian powers, um, this particular battle, which is, is, is the one um, with which I really kind of round off the narrative, um, takes place in 1571, is a brief moment in the, the conflict between the Ottomans and um, a, a kind of rare, rare moment of alliance between the Christian powers um, to, to um, which the Christian side win. 
um, it's actually a little bit of a blip in terms of the broader developments because the, the Ottomans yeah. gain a lot of what they want at the end of it. But it, it acquires this enormous sort of symbolic value um, in the Counter-Reformation context in which he's sort of portrayed as a God-given victory to the Christians, um, somewhat against the odds. And I think it, it's interesting to reflect on the ways that even you know when, when people are losing a war, they can still you know make enormous cultural capital from the um, the battles that they lost, and I was I was sort of struck in as as I was coming to the end of the book. Um, there's a particular, I and mean, people people might recall the um, the horrific um, terrorist incident at a mosque in Christchurch in New Zealand, where um, a number of people were killed. Um, and one of the things that came out in the news afterwards was that um, the perpetrator had um, sort of painted onto his gun um, a number of names of prominent um, so-called clash of civilizations battles, um, of which one was Lepanto. And I think um, that brought home to me the importance of trying to put forward um, an honest um, historical narrative, a truthful historical narrative about what was really going on um, in some of these conflicts in the past um, to try and counter that you know, effort that you sometimes see, perhaps um, more with um, crusades-type battles than with anything in the 16th century, but to try and counter some of that, that effort to appropriate them for um, you know, far-right political causes. Mm-hmm. Um- Let's talk about the the book and how you built it, how you constructed this book. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm always curious what um, not only made you want to write the book, um, but actually made you want to finish it. Um, a contract helps, but um, but what was the what, what was the gas in the tank? I think I I mean I have been thinking about this period of history probably for the best part of 20 years now. Hmm. Um, and it, this was always the the book I wanted to give people to try and explain the broader points I was making. So very often I would be asked to, um, can I, can, could I give a talk about Leonardo da Vinci? Could I give a talk about, um, you know, Lucretia Borgia? Could I give a talk about Pope Clement the Seventh, or you know, or give a lecture about any one of these um, these individuals or any single trend. And a lot of the time, I found you know when I was doing that, <laughs> I was giving the same introduction, saying, "Look, in order to understand um, the response of Pope whoever to the challenge of the Reformation, um, what you need to do is to look at the broader picture." <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah. wouldn't it be much better if there was just one book I could say, go and read that book, <laughs> it will tell you about the broader picture. And then I thought, well, perhaps actually I should um, I should write that because I'd, I'd, I'd written a couple of books previously that were really focused on quite small scale stories, primarily less than a decade. Um, and I wanted to have a go at trying to say, look, um, this is how I see the broad story of what was going on in Italy um, in in these years that I, I have written about in, in more depth and focus. So how did you manage to come to grips with such an enormous topic uh, about which so much has been written about those dis- about Lucrezia Borgia, about mm. this pope, that pope, Martin Luther, Luther in Italy? I mean, Luther in Italy alone, I'm sure there must be about 15 books in five different languages about his trip to Italy. Um how do you come to grips with all that material? But then also, how do you even begin to conceive of a narrative? I think, you know, when you're trying to do a one-volume book um, at a reasonable length, you have to accept that with a topic of this size, you can't do everything. Um, so I already had in the back of my mind some 
themes that I wanted to cover. I was primarily interested in um, stories and cases that would illustrate the connections between these four different big narratives of the 16th century. So the the Renaissance arts culture one, the religion one, the um, European empires one, and and then warfare. So my priority was really in going through the literature to think about, um, obviously, you know, some background detail of everything um, has to go in for our readers to understand what's going on. But the priority was was trying to to bring to light things that perhaps were sometimes marginalised in, um, in in the, the the general sort of narrative of the Renaissance, um, and also to to focus on stories that might link um, more than one of, of those overarching themes, and also to um, to prioritise the things that people need to know to understand what's going on in the period. I mean, I'm conscious that this is not um, a topic that is covered, certainly in the UK curriculum for people in high school equivalent. Um, you know, the students will often come to me in university knowing virtually nothing about the background to this period beyond a handful of names at best. So trying to make sure as I went through that I wasn't throwing in so much complexity as to just lose readers in the, in the course of it. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it's um, it's a great. Uh, the connections are fantastic. Did you and you you began with those connections? Sort of. Did you? I, I've heard Dan Jones say that he sets up um, uh, uh, some pin board and he puts like three by five cards and links them together. Do you have some sort of way of outlining of, of connecting those those knots of Leonardo da Vinci to Cristoforo Colombo to Vittoria Colonna to Beretta? How, how did you do that? I'm a little bit more um, technologically minded, um, so that to have a literal pin board. I mean, I, I use Scrivener, um, oh, which do. is this kind That's of the, well, the best ever. Uh, yeah, pro it, I love that program. It, it's, a, it's a great piece of software for writing yeah. um, long form work because you can, um, you know, you have all your virtual post its and notes and uh -huh. so forth. So I really planned things out. I, I had I had a sketched out list of chapters early on, which didn't change a great deal. So I, I knew roughly speaking what was going into, into each chapter and how it was going to progress chronologically. And then I really just started um, sort of almost brainstorming because a lot of a lot of the literature that I was reading for this book um, you know, w w was um, material that I had read before at some point, perhaps a number of years ago. So part of it was me going back through saying, oh, at this point, I should mention this story that's in the, that I know such and such wrote about. And so for me, there was quite a lot of revisiting in this book. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's different from writing a book that where where the topic isn't familiar with. This is, this is um, a lot of things that I've already you know, given lectures on where that I've already, um, you know, discussed in radio programs that that I've talked about in 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 public talks and so forth. So I, some some of it is about organising knowledge that already somehow existed in my head, and then going working out where I had gaps and where I knew that I would need to say more more um, about a particular theme. So we're um, talking uh, in in the time of pandemic, um, in the time of COVID. Uh, and no one's traveling, and uh, you are locked down, and I'm three th three five hundred miles away. I'm locked down, um, and we're shut in. And it doesn't seem like we'll be going to Italy anytime soon, uh, but we will. We'll go. We'll go back to Italy. And um, one of the beautiful things about your book is the way that the Mona Lisa or a Beretta shotgun um, or many other things, uh, are, are, as I said, are knots, and they're connected to many other little strands of, of thread or rope. 
Um, what's a place in Italy that you would want us to go to when we can and to see in a new way, to see and think about in a new way? I know it's a, a, a baptistry in Florence suggests itself now that we've heard about um, the slaves of, of, of that family. Um, but what might be another one? That's certainly one. I think another one is the um, the Palazzo Te in Mantua, which is this beautiful summer palace of um, the Marquises and the, and the Dukes of Mantua, which I, I discuss it a little bit in a, in a chapter that I have um, on the theme of pornography, because it does have <laughs> quite, you know, what, what, some quite sexually explicit frescoes in there, which um, you might read in, in, in the light of, you know, thinking about gender relations in 16th century Italy. But I'm not really thinking about it for that reason. It's actually because there's another room in there, um, which is a room um, that has this extraordinary optical illusion um, all around the room, painting and onto the ceiling, depicting the great kind of battle of the gods and giants of ancient mythology. So this is a kind of clash of the titans, um, Renaissance style. And it's, I mean, it's a phenomenal immersive piece of artwork um, done by Giulio Romano. Um, but I'm also really interested in actually how that artwork relates to the experience that a lot of its early viewers will have had of being on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. um, because it's one thing to be sort of immersed in a classical painting of a battle, and then it's slightly different to think what it's like to be in that painting if memories of warfare are immediately in your head. Um, you know, how does that feel? How different might it have been for the people who, you know, had come to that palace after being, um, you know, fighting 50 miles down the road. Hmm. You know, th th those are real, th th those people, you, you know, the, the, these are people's real life experiences of war. And that, again, is not a story we necessarily think about when we look at some of these mythologized battles. But I kind of think perhaps there might have been more of that going through the viewers' heads in those early years. My guest today has been Catherine Fletcher. She's the author of The New History, The Beauty and the Terror, The Italian Renaissance and the Rise of the West, available from Oxford University Press this summer. Catherine Fletcher, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rudat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.